We're going to be looking at Matthew 5 this morning, starting to study the Sermon on the Mount, and I would encourage you to turn there and keep your Bibles open. We'll be looking at the passage that was read for us in that DVD we just saw. Matthew chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 16. I'm going to read part of it, the first half of that, and then we'll begin. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this very familiar passage of Scripture, help us to picture what it must have been like when Jesus spoke these words for the very first time. And the crowds heard him gladly with joy, with delight, at this one who taught as no one else ever had. And Father, may we hear your truth this morning and see how it applies to us as well. Amen. On July 4th, 1776, when our founding fathers declared our independence from England, they were taking a step that was a very bold step in the history of nations. In the Declaration of Independence, they wrote that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. They knew that what they were doing in those days would be considered treason by England. It was a very bold step, but they were willing to put their life on the line for something that they valued, something called liberty or freedom. Abraham Lincoln, many years later in his Gettysburg Address, would say that they were establishing a government of the people and by the people and for the people. And this grand experiment has now lasted for 235 years. But when Jesus gave his Sermon on the Mount, he was doing something even more radical. Michael Wilkins says that the Beatitudes are a radically bold statement of Jesus' intent to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. Here in this fallen world, Jesus was breaking in and establishing a foothold for his kingdom, if you will. And if you want to think about it in that way, really, it is Jesus who is the King who is now giving His inaugural address. And in this address, He is describing what the Kingdom of Heaven is like and what it should be like for those who will become citizens of His Kingdom. 
When we read the Sermon on the Mount, we see too that Jesus establishes the standards very high. In fact, the standard is so high that sometimes when we read it, we just feel like, I can't do that. I can't do that. I mean, when Jesus makes a statement that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, and we look at how hard they try to live up to the law and to fulfill everything, we go, we fall short too. And that has caused some believers to question the value of the Sermon on the Mount for today. I know Martin Luther struggled with this. He viewed it as an exposition of the law, of the Old Testament law, that was designed to drive us to grace. Some dispensationalists have taught that it is a description of what the Messianic kingdom is going to be like. So it's future and it's not for today. Social reformers have looked at this and it's resonated with their heart and they've tried to use it as a road map for social progress. But many have tried to do it without the power of the gospel. And it will fail. Most evangelicals believe the Sermon on the Mount is for believers today. That in it, Jesus shows us what life in the kingdom is like. But we cannot do it in our own strength. It is Christ in us that makes the difference. If you were here on Wednesday night when Pastor Jim was speaking... You heard him share an observation from Martin Luther that I think is appropriate to this as well. And he said that when we read the Bible, if we read it wrongly, as though we must do everything on our own, then every verse in the Bible, even in the Gospel, can be like law to us. And it can kill us. Because we see these things that Jesus states here, and if we try to do this in our own strength, we are going to fall short. But Luther also said that every verse in the Bible, when read correctly, through the eyes of grace, is life. It's life, and there's freedom, and there's joy there. When we read these verses and we realize that it is not up to us to do all of this, but it is Christ in us. And this is what He wants to do in your life and mine. He is fitting us for heaven. He is making us citizens of His kingdom who will live out these kind of qualities in our life. Let me give you a little more background on uh, the Sermon on the Mount and how important it is in the book of Matthew as well. When you study the Gospel of Matthew, we realize that there are five discourses there. There are five teaching passages. There's this one that covers chapters 5 to 7. There's another teaching passage in chapter 10 that's about the mission of the kingdom and suffering. In chapter 13, uh, we read about the parables of the kingdom and the kingdom's worth. In chapter 18, we're going to read about parables of the kingdom that talks about relationships in the kingdom. And then in chapters 24 and 25, we read about the end of the age and Jesus' return. And that fits with Matthew's theme, the importance of teaching. And it fits with the great commission that Jesus gave in Matthew 28. When He said that we were to go and make disciples of all nations, and then we were to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then He said, I want you to teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Well, how can we teach others to obey what Jesus has commanded unless we know what He taught. 
And so Matthew records these five very significant teaching passages of Jesus so that we can understand the heart of the kingdom. And then I want to make a comment on the word beatitude because sometimes people ask about this as well. Where does the word beatitude come from? Well, it comes from the Latin word for blessed. The Greek word in this passage that we translate in English as blessed means approved by God. Approved by God. It is more than just happiness we can depend upon our circumstances. I mean, our personal happiness can go up and down depending upon how our day goes. If we're having a good day, we can feel good about it. If we're having a bad day, we can feel kind of low. The blessing of God is irrespective of how we feel. You see, the Beatitudes are the character traits that God approves of in His people. These are the qualities that God against wants to produce in us as children of God. So here's the challenge. We are to live by the values of God's kingdom and not by the values of this world. We are to live by the values of God's kingdom and not by the values of this world. And that's what Jesus is teaching us in this passage. And wherever those values are in conflict, we must follow Christ. So what are the characteristics of those who are approved by God? Well, that's what we see in the Beatitudes, and there are eight of them that are highlighted here. I'm going to move through them kind of quickly, because uh, this is one of the dangers in preaching. If you got eight points and I spend five minutes on each one, that's 40 minutes right there. And we've got a few other things we're going to touch on. So I'm just going to highlight some of these and hopefully stimulate your thinking in each of the areas. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He places this one first in the Beatitudes, and it's there for a reason. It teaches us that entrance to the kingdom of heaven is not based upon our merit. No one's going to get into heaven because of what they have done. It is not the spiritually proud or the self-sufficient who gain entrance into heaven. The poor in spirit are those who are humble before God, who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, who see their need for salvation and they turn to Christ and come humbly before Him. That's the only qualification, if you will, to come into His kingdom. It is to come humbly and to seek Him above all. Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn. And He is not talking about grief over someone who has died. God does comfort us in our times of grief like that. But in this passage, He is talking about grief over sin. Over sin in our own heart and over sin in our world. It's the feeling we have when we look at how we've tried to live in a way that pleases God and we've seen that we've missed the mark or we've blown it and we grieve over our own personal sin. Or when we look at our world and we see the wickedness or we see the injustice, we see the depravity or the cruelty, the abuse that goes on and it breaks our heart. That's the way that it should be for the people of God. We should feel grief over sin and turn to Him for forgiveness and pray for our world. Blessed are the meek. 
Meekness is kind of hard for us to understand sometimes in our world. People view meekness as weakness, as a quality that you would not aspire to. But in the Scripture, meekness is really gentleness. It is freedom from malice and a vengeful spirit. It's the quality of a person who doesn't seek to get even, or if you do this, I'm going to do that, and get back, and kind of fall into those kind of relationships that you can read about all the way through Scripture, going back to Cain and Abel and to Lamech and his vengeful spirit. What Jesus is trying to tell us here that it is not the strong, it's not the oppressive, it's not the tyrant who is going to inherit the earth. It is the meek. It is those who are gentle in their heart who will one day enter into the new heaven and the new earth. And you begin to see in reading this how Jesus turns the values of the world on its head. That's not the way that people in our world want to look at things, but Jesus is saying you want to be truly great in my kingdom again. Have that heart of a servant. Have that heart of a person who is gentle and kind and gracious and loving. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Again, this hungering and thirsting for righteousness is both in our own relationship with God. We want to grow in that relationship. We want to know Him better. You know, and you can see that. And I see that as a pastor, for example, in individuals that are just so hungry to grow. I love it when somebody comes to know Christ and they're reading their Bible and they just, it's like they can't get enough of it. Or they're reading and they come across something that just jumps off the page at them and they're so excited about the Scripture. And they'll go, Pastor, have you seen this? You know, have you seen this? And they want to share what they're learning. Jesus delights in filling those who are hungry. But it's also a hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice in our world. That again, when we see the injustice... We see people that are starving. We want to help them. We see people that are homeless. We want to help meet their needs. We see people that are victims of cruelty and injustice in other countries, and we want to see that changed. These are the kind of people that pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart, It refers to personal holiness. We look at that and we think, you know, there is no way that we can do that again on our own. And we can't. We're not pure in our heart. We have all sinned. We have fallen short. But by the grace of God, when Jesus comes into our life, He begins to change us. And we grow in Christ-likeness. And we see His holiness begin to transform us. The pure in heart are those who are single-minded in their desire to follow Christ. I I think about that. That's a very good way for us to understand this. Single-minded in their desire to follow Christ. You know, when I look back on my spiritual walk with Christ, I remember, you know, age 10, I accepted Christ as my Savior, but I can tell you in those high school years, I wasn't really growing spiritually as I should, and I was kind of trying to keep a foot in both worlds. 
trying to, you know, run with my friends and doing some things that I shouldn't be doing and yet trying to be involved in the church and in youth group or activities there. And I want to tell you that was really the most miserable time in my life when I felt like I was a double-minded person. You see, you can't live happily that way. You're not experiencing the fullness of Christ. You see, an impure heart cannot enjoy that rich and complete fellowship with Christ that He intends. God wants us to be single-minded in our love for Him. And He tells us that when we do that, it is the pure in heart who will see God and experience His blessing in their life. Blessed are the peacemakers. You know, and he talks about peacemakers here. It's those who delight in relationships that are healthy and whole. Instead of delighting in bitterness and divisions and pettiness and strife, they pursue peace. And that starts really right in our family. That starts in our marriage. It starts in our relationship with our children that we want our homes to be harmonious. We want our homes to be loving and places where we want to come back to because of the healthy relationships that are going on there. And we work toward peace in our relationships. But it's also true whether it's in our workplace or our school or with our friends or in our world in general. John Broadus, the Baptist preacher, said that there is no more godlike work to be done in this world than peacemaking. Jesus would be called the Prince of Peace. And those who live this way, who are peacemakers, he says, will be called sons of God. Sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Again, we see this, and sometimes for us, living with the freedoms that we do in this country, you know, we don't experience persecution like our brothers and sisters do. And it can be hard for us to imagine what they are going through. We read the Sermon on the Mount here in these Beatitudes, and we look at that list of qualities, and as believers, we admire that, we aspire to it. And you would think that people who live this way would be valued by our world. I mean, you think, who wouldn't want to have a neighbor, for example, who is a peacemaker, who is kind, or who is good, or gentle, or loving, or who is that kind of person that you could trust with anything that you owned? And yet there are those in our world who hate believers. We see both sides, don't we? We see those who are drawn to Christians because of their faith and the presence of Christ in their life. And we see those who are repelled by it and who think that Christ is the reason for all the problems in the world. Both sides are there. How do we respond if we are slandered or libeled or falsely accused or persecuted for the sake of Christ? Jesus tells us to rejoice And be glad that the appropriate response on our part is joy, not retaliation or vengeance. And, you know, do you ever read that and you just think, how can you do that? I mean, I think of believers in other parts of the world who are thrown in prison or are tortured or are treated in ways that are just so barbaric. 
And here Jesus is saying, rejoice and be glad. Again, we cannot do that in our strength. It is Christ in us who makes the difference. And He is not describing here life as it should be. You you have to look at this passage in the context of others like Romans 13 that calls upon government to ensure the safety of its people. It calls upon government to be the defender of those who are weak, not the oppressor. And there are times when in this world, because of the cruelty and the injustice and sin in our world, when governments must take a stand. But here are the qualities that Jesus lists that He wants to see in you and me. A humility before God, a grief over the sin in our life, a meekness and a gentleness, a hunger in our heart for righteousness, a mercy that is shown to others because God has shown mercy to us, a purity or holiness in our heart, a desire for peace and a rejoicing in Him. Michael Wilkins shared in his commentary a personal testimony about this passage that some of you maybe can relate to. He said, when I was a young teenager, I remember hearing our youth group talk about these qualities, and I I just didn't see the value of them at that stage in my life. I remember snickering in the back with my buddies as the youth leaders cajoled us to cease being cocky and macho, and to become meek and mild. There were four of us who were three-sport athletes in high school, and the picture of the Christian life that was held for us, held up for us from the Beatitudes seemed lamely pathetic. As I think back, our youthful cockiness and machismo were probably just as pathetic, but the Christian life that was painted by that church had nothing to offer us as a viable, robust alternative. So not too many years after ruling out the Beatitudes for real life, I find myself in Vietnam during that war. And he was sitting under the stars in a jungle, and he was on watch that night. I was a member of a cocky airborne infantry combat battalion, and we were a well-trained, exceedingly efficient war machine. And one night as I sat on guard... After an especially ravaging battle, I experienced the reality of what Jesus talked about in the Beatitudes. He said, I had killed gleefully that day. I had ripped the life from other young men without a twinge of conscience. I saw the bodies of my 19 and 20 year old friends ravaged on either side. They were killed by other young men who were our hated enemies, yet probably none of us on either side could really offer any adequate explanation for our animosity. And that night I experienced brokenness. I became poor in spirit as I recognized the depth of my depravity and I shuddered as I considered the possibility of my fate before God. I mourned at the evil in me and the evil that I saw emerge so quickly in all of us. And for the first time in my young life, I understood that I was not the invincible captain of my ship. I could be killed at any moment. And so from that very night, I began to realize that there was indeed a very different way to live. 
I did not articulate it that night in these words, but meekness, righteousness, mercy, purity, and peacemaking all became so much more clearly preferable than the way that I had been pursuing significance and success. It was a turning point in his life, and he would write that two years later, he would come into a relationship with Jesus Christ as his personal Savior that changed everything. James Boyce said, if we were to write our own Beatitudes based upon this world, it would go something like this. We would probably say, blessed are the rich, for they have it all and they have it all now. And blessed are the happy, for they are content with themselves and they don't need others. Blessed are the arrogant, for people defer to them. Blessed are those who fight for the good things in life, for they will get them. And blessed are the sophisticated, for they will have a good time. But Jesus says, not so with you. Whose values do you live by? And whose approval do you seek? How we answer that question really changes everything. Will we live by the values of this world or by the values of the kingdom of heaven? And is it the approval of men that we seek? Or is it the approval of God that we seek most of all? Well, secondly, we are to let our life be a savoring influence for Christ. And we see that in verses 13 to 16. Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. And you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Salt and light are common metaphors that are easily understood. Even the Roman author Pliny at that time said that nothing is more useful than salt and sunshine. And I mean, when we think about it, those are things that we value every day. We love salt on our food because it brings out the flavor. We love a sunny day when we can see the brightness and the sunshine that lifts our spirits. There's nothing more useful than those things. And Jesus said that's how we are to be in this world. That as Christians in this world, we are to be that kind of savoring influence. A light that shines so that others might see Christ. Salt was used then and now both as a flavoring for food and as a preservative. And it was actually that second use as a preservative that was most valuable in the ancient world. A little salt would slow the decay of meat. You know, it would be that kind of preservative that would keep that food, uh, you know, edible for days to come. And we in this world are to be that same kind of moral preservative. And I know for us it's sometimes hard to see the effect of that. We wonder, am I making a difference at all? In my school, in my neighborhood, in my place of work, or where I live? We just don't always see it. 
And yet Jesus is using you and me to make a difference. I think of that too. At this time of year, many of us watch the movie It's a Wonderful Life about George Bailey. It's an example of sometimes again how we just don't see the impact that one life may have upon another and another and another that again carries out those ripple effects. It's probably a good thing we don't see it so that we don't become proud over those things and the credit goes to God. But one day I think we will see how our life has touched many, many others. Salt in the ancient world was not as pure as our salt is. Uh, They got their salt by digging it up from salt marshes like those around the Dead Sea. Uh, They did not use evaporation as a means to get a more pure salt for a number of years. And so this salt that would be brought in sometimes was not as flavorful. You know, salt itself can't lose its flavor. Salt is salt. But when it's mixed with impurities and it becomes kind of unpalatable or unuseful, it was simply thrown out and almost used as a fertilizer or a hardening agent. Savorless salt would be scattered on flat roofs of the homes that they had where it was tread underfoot, if you will. Because those flat roofs were used as a patio, kind of like a balcony, and, and they would throw the salt on there and it would actually harden the soil and prevent some of the leaks, the rain from coming through. When you look at our life, it is the impurities in our life that hinder our witness for Christ also. If we are to be effective in our witness for Jesus Christ, then we need to walk with Him. If people look at our life and they just see someone who's an absolute hypocrite, it's not going to be a very effective witness, is it? In fact, it's going to turn people off to Christ more than it will draw them to. And it's not saying that we are going to be perfect, but people should see our progress that we are growing in our relationship with Christ so that others can see the difference in us. You are the light of the world, Jesus said. That's a remarkable statement. Last week we looked at how Jesus is the light of the world. I mean, He's the source of the light. He is like the sun. And we're more like the moon. We reflect His light. And when He shines through us, even that reflected life can be significant. You are like a city on a hill. A city in those days in Israel was built out of limestone and when the sun shone on it, it gleamed. It could not be hidden. You are like a lamp in a house that gives light. And you don't take a lamp, a candle for example, and put it under a bowl. You'd only do that if you were trying to extinguish the light. Instead, you put that lamp up on a stand so that it can give light for everyone to see. And how are we to let our light shine? Well, Jesus answers that question also in verse 16. When He said, In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. It's not just by our words. It is by our words and our deeds that we bring glory to Christ. And we don't do these things to gain entrance into the kingdom. We couldn't. But what he is saying is that if we will live by the values of his kingdom, we will be a witness for Christ in this world. 
Let me give you an example of how this can work. Neil Anderson tells a story in his book, Victory Over the Darkness, about a young woman who had a very significant ministry in the life of one girl. At the turn of the 20th century, there was an insane asylum in the suburbs of Boston which dealt with severely mentally retarded and disturbed individuals. One of the patients there was a girl who was simply called Little Annie. She was totally unresponsive to others in the asylum. The staff tried everything that they could do to help her, yet without success. And finally, she was confined to a cell in the basement of the asylum and given up as hopeless. But there was a beautiful Christian woman who worked at the asylum, and she believed that every one of God's creatures needed love and concern and care. So she decided to spend her lunch hours in front of little Annie's cell. She would read to her, and she prayed that God would free her from her prison of silence. Day after day, the Christian woman came to little Annie's door and read, but the little girl made no response. Months went by. The woman tried to talk with little Annie, but it was like talking to an empty cell. She brought little tokens of food for the girl, but they were never received. And then one day, a brownie was missing from the plate of food. Encouraged, the woman continued to read to her and pray for her. Eventually, the little girl began to answer the woman through the bars of her cell. And soon the woman convinced the doctors that little Annie needed a second chance at treatment. They brought her up from the basement. They continued to work with her. And within two years, little Annie was told that she could leave the asylum and enjoy a normal life. But she chose not to leave. She was so grateful for the love and attention that she had been given by this dedicated Christian woman that she decided to stay and to love others as she had been loved. So little Annie stayed on at the institution to work with other patients who were suffering as she had suffered. Well, fast forward. Nearly half a century later, the Queen of England held a special ceremony to honor one of America's most inspiring women, Helen Keller. And when asked to what she would attribute her success at overcoming the dual handicap of blindness and deafness, Helen Keller replied, If it hadn't been for Ann Sullivan, I wouldn't be here today. Ann Sullivan, who tenaciously loved and believed in an incorrigible blind and deaf girl named Helen Keller, was little Annie. And because of one selfless Christian woman who worked in the dungeon of an insane asylum in Boston, a hopeless little girl who needed God's love, changed the life of another and gave us, in a sense, the marvelous gift of Helen Keller. You know, when I read that story, here's what sticks out to me. We all know the names of Helen Keller and Ann Sullivan. But nobody knows the name of that woman who went in every day to work with little Annie. Nobody, that is, but God. And is that enough? Yeah, that's enough. And when I think about that, you know, like... You know, when I think about that in my own life or in our church, 
Are you willing to be the person that nobody knows but God? Are you willing to be that person who maybe God is calling you to love that kid in the school who's not quite so lovely? Or maybe it's even in your Sunday school class or Awana when the kids are energetic and not listening real well and getting out of hand. Can you have the patience and the willingness to listen and to love them and to point them to Christ? Because we don't know what God may do through us and how those ripples may affect all of eternity. I wonder how many more there are like this woman who have impacted the lives of others. I think of that of the Sunday school teacher who led D.L. Moody to the Lord or the people who influenced the evangelist who led Billy Graham to the Lord. I mean, there are just these kind of progressions that go on. But it starts with people like you and me who are willing to serve Christ right where we are and who don't care who gets the credit. We want to give that credit to the Lord. Maybe your ministry and your calling is to reach out to a neighbor or a co-worker. Maybe it is with those students that you serve every day. Or maybe it's in your prayers for a missionary who's gone out from our church or who you support in another ministry. And it is your prayers today that may make a difference in the life of someone tomorrow. Jesus is calling us as His children, as members of His kingdom, to live by the values of God's kingdom and to put that into practice every day and then to live our life in such a way that others may see Jesus in you and in me. Let's pray. Father, when we read stories about this woman who reached out to Ann Sullivan, it encourages us in our heart. Because sometimes we may feel kind of insignificant. Or what is it that you want me to do? We're here in this community and we want to love you and honor you and we do our best to minister to those that you bring into our life. And we recognize our failures and there are days when we don't do it so well. Father, we need you. And today we humble ourselves before you and we ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit Encourage our hearts and lead us and guide us that we may be the kind of people that you will use to make a difference for Christ. And Lord, what a joy it's going to be when we stand in eternity and we hear the stories of what you have done far beyond what we would have thought or imagined. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.